science you can use. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Today, some views on acetaminophen, the most popular painkiller in, uh, in North America. We're also going to discuss Dr. Butter Jennings' water nonsense. We'll talk about artificial flavors, and I'll give you a little bit of insight into the Ig Nobel Prizes. Uh, let me toss a question out at you. A bicycle shop opened in 1892 in Dayton, Ohio. What would it become famous for? So this bicycle shop opened in 1892, Dayton, Ohio. It would eventually become famous. Why? If you know the answer to that, you give us a call at 514-790-0800. That's also the number that you can call with uh, questions. Any scientific issue is open. No guarantees of answers, but you can certainly ask the questions. And uh, to get started here today, I want to talk a little bit about acetaminophen. Acetaminophen is the most widely used uh, painkiller in North America. And the trade name that you're familiar with is Tylenol. And uh, this has been around for over 100 years to treat pain and fever. Like many medications, the discovery was accidental. Way back in the second half of the 19th century, there was a great deal of chemical research that focused on the reactions of aniline. This compound was isolated from coal tar, and the discovery that it could be converted into various dyes had given birth to the synthetic dye industry. As a consequence, many derivatives of aniline were made, mostly for use in dyes, but they were also tested for possible use as medicines. And one of these, acetanilid, was tried on a patient who had been diagnosed with intestinal parasites. It didn't do anything for the parasites, but the patient's fever was reduced. In 1886, acetanilid began to be sold as a drug to reduce fever. It later turned out that acetanilid was not the active agent, but rather it was one of its metabolites produced as the body was trying to eliminate the intruder. That was the active compound. It was responsible for the reduction in fever, and that metabolite turned out to be acetaminophen. That was also the metabolite of phenacetin, another drug that was introduced just a year after acetanilid as a fever fighter. That was introduced by the Bayer Company, and that company had been looking for a use for paranitrophenol. That was a compound that had accumulated in a large quantity as a byproduct of dye production. And yes, the Bayer Company originally was a dye manufacturer. Biochemists synthesized a number of derivatives of which phenacetin turned out to have fever and pain-reducing properties. This established Bayer as a prime drug manufacturer, even before it came up with its most successful drug, and that, of course, was aspirin. That was in 1897. Both acetanilid and phenacetin eventually were shown to have unacceptable toxicity, but their metabolite, acetaminophen, was effective and safe. Unlike acetylsalicylic acid, aspirin, it does not affect blood clotting and can safely be used by people who are on what are called blood thinners, although they really should be called anticoagulants. Although safer than its predecessors, acetaminophen can also be toxic in high doses. Metabolism of acetaminophen occurs in the liver 
and under normal conditions, its breakdown products are readily excreted. However, an overdose can result in exceeding the liver's ability to safely eliminate metabolites, and one of these, anacetyl benzoquinonimine, can damage the liver to the extent that a liver transplant is needed. Consuming alcohol enhances the formation of the toxic metabolites, and many cases of acetaminophen-induced liver damage occur when the drug and alcohol are consumed together. And unfortunately, uh, this is not an uncommon situation. Why? Because uh, there are a number of medications that combine acetaminophen with opiates, and people who are trying to get high on opiates will take those medications and also experience acetaminophen toxicity. Also, it turns out that uh, acetaminophen, because it's so readily available, uh, people have used it trying to do away with themselves. Well, acetaminophen, uh, of course, in a high enough dose can do that, but if... Uh, the person is not successful, then liver damage is what they will end up with. And uh, emergency room visits, uh, unfortunately, are quite common because of acetaminophen uh, toxicity. So while liver toxicity is the main concern with acetaminophen, researchers have also raised the possibility that the drug may affect the mind. In particular, a study in 2015 by Ohio State University psychologists suggested that acetaminophen blunts emotional processing, and this then caused a flurry of social media activity with some bloggers claiming soul-deadening effects. The term soul was never mentioned by the researchers. I have no idea whether we have one, and if we do, what sort of chemical brutality can dispense with it. I'll leave that discussion to experts in the fields of philosophy and religious studies. Empathy, on the other hand, well, that I can grasp. It is the ability to place oneself in another position, someone else's position, and understand what they're feeling. It's a prime quality in a physician and is something we look for when interviewing medical school applicants. So, does the Ohio State study show that acetaminophen reduces empathy? Researchers gave either acetaminophen, or a placebo to subjects who were then shown pictures that were extremely unpleasant, moderately unpleasant, neutral, moderately pleasant, or extremely pleasant. These pictures were drawn from the International Effective Picture System, which is a database of pictures designed to provide a standardized set of pictures for studying emotion and attention. For example, an unpleasant picture may portray malnourished children, a cow in a field would be a neutral image, and children playing with kittens would be deemed pleasant. After being shown an array of 40 pictures, participants were then asked, to what extent is this picture positive or negative? And they used a scale ranging from minus 5 for extremely negative to plus 5 for extremely positive. People who took acetaminophen had a somewhat smaller spread of reactions than those taking a placebo. This was interpreted as, quote, blunting evaluations towards both pleasant and unpleasant stimuli. Well, you know what, I think it's quite a stretch, given that the differences were tiny. In the extremely unpleasant category, for example, the difference on the five-point scale between acetaminophen and the placebo group was 0.2, hardly a difference with any practical significance. I uh, doubt that a doctor who has swallowed a couple of acetaminophen tablets for a headache would be less 
empathetic towards patients or that a teacher would be less understanding about a dog having eaten the homework. The Ohio State researchers are not the only ones who have explored the effects of acetaminophen on the mind. In a University of British Columbia study, subjects were asked to write essays about death, and those who had taken acetaminophen were, quote, more able to cope with worrisome ideas, more than those who had been given a placebo. Furthermore, when asked to pass judgment on hypothetical criminal activities, they were less strict. Hard to know what the practical significance here is. Oh, perhaps during jury selection, prosecuting attorneys should ask prospective jurors if they had been taking acetaminophen. Basically, all of this, you know what, is, is pretty soft science. Interesting, but pretty soft. Uh, and thinking about what it all means can give one a headache. But you know what? At least for that, we know that uh, acetaminophen will indeed work. Just be mindful of the dose. You're listening to the Dr. Joe Show. We're going to take a break. And after the break, we'll be back and talk about some water nonsense and hopefully your answer to the question about why that bicycle shop in Dayton, Ohio, became famous. Your source when you need answers. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Okay, the question that I had posed was about that bike shop in Dayton, Ohio, that eventually became famous. Let's see if Barbara knows the answer. Hi, Barbara. How are you? Good. What's up? Uh, I think it's Harley Davidson. No, it isn't. No. You were sure, right? <laughs> I, I thought I was sure. <laughs> no. Okay. Uh, we'll go for David. Hi, David. Hi, Dr. Joe. How uh, are you today? Good. Hello? Yes, go yeah, ahead. Okay. It's the shop of the uh, Orville Wilbur Wright. Exactly. Exactly. Orville and Wilbur Wright, yeah. the uh, inventors of the airplane, started out with a bike shop. I do have a, I do have a question for you, actually. Okay. And a comment also. Uh, what do you see your new book coming out? It's out. It came out two weeks ago. Oh, It's okay. called A Grain of Salt, and it's uh, available everywhere, uh, hopefully. If you That's want, good. if anyone wants a signed copy, you can email me, and that's at uh, jojoe.schwarcz at mcgill.ca. Oh, okay. And I can send you a signed copy. It will set you back twenty bucks. Uh, that includes postage, and some of the uh, uh, that goes to the Montreal Children's Hospital. That sounds good. I wanted to tell you a book I was given to read, which I found fascinating. I'm sure you've heard about it. A Short History of Nearly Everything by Bill Bryson. Yes, I've read it. Bill oh, Bryson is wonderful. Amazing book. And he's just come out with a new book, and it's all about the body. Uh, and uh, if you liked that book, you'll really enjoy this one. Okay. It's a tour through the body. Yeah, fascinating. I Bill, mean, the, what the work that the guy did to put it together. Oh, yeah. Bill Bryson is really quite amazing. Yeah. What's his, background? his His books are well worth reading. What's his background? Do you know? Uh, he's not a scientific background. He's a, he's a writer, uh, columnist. Uh, I'm not sure what his educational background is, but it's not science. Okay, so just he put together a wonderful book. He sure I did. Fine, very well to your book. Okay. Take care. Thanks very much. All right, uh, let me go to uh, Joel. Hi, Joel. Hi. Hi. So I have a question about aspirin. 
Okay. I'm uh, I'm a regular blood donor. Yes. I give through a process called apheresis. Yes. Now, before I give blood for two or three days, I'm not allowed to take aspirin. Right. But I'm allowed to take Tylenol. Yes. Because so both of okay, first of all, uh, uh, apheresis uh, is used uh, for donation of platelets, and yeah. those are the cells that cause blood clotting. Okay, now be because aspirin interferes with blood clotting, aspirin is therefore colloquially referred to as a blood thinner. You're not allowed to give uh, uh, platelets within 48 hours uh, of having taken aspirin because uh, of the effect on the platelets. They will not uh, uh, have the same anticoagulant property. So if someone is infused with those, uh, it will still have the blood thinning effect. Now, this is not the case when you're just donating whole blood. Uh, if you're donating whole blood, then it doesn't matter. You can you can take aspirin. Okay, and the Tylenol doesn't do anything. Tylenol has no effect on on blood coagulation, and right. uh, Tylenol is also easier on the on on the stomach than aspirin and the non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. So very often that's why it is uh, recommended. And it is a very potent painkiller, especially when it is used in combination with other uh, painkillers, you know, such as codeine. A uh, combination of acetaminophen and codeine is a more effective painkiller than either one alone. But again, uh, there is the potential toxicity of acetaminophen on the liver, especially if it is taken with alcohol, which of course should never be done. No, no drug should ever be taken with alcohol. Okay? Interesting. Okay. Thank you. All right. I think uh, Angela also has a question. Angela. Yes, uh, Dr. Schwartz. Thank you for taking my call. You know, there's a commercial on TV saying that Peru is the richest country in the world. How can that be when Canada and the United States are so rich? I have never seen such a commercial. And uh, are you sure you got that right? Yes, I'm sure. Wasn't it something maybe that Peru is the richest in something? No, they said it's the richest country in the world. I don't know. It may be the richest country in the world in terms of some sort of mineral deposit or something like that. I thought of it too, yeah. But they don't say that. Okay, I'll have to check that. I'll check that online and uh, see what I can dig up. Oh, okay? thank you very much. All right, I will look into that to see why there is a claim that Peru is the richest country in the world, which... Uh, I think there must be some sort of nuance to uh, to that particular uh, claim. Okay, uh, the Ig Nobel Prizes are handed out every year uh, by a committee at Harvard University, and these are sort of the, the uh, uh, parody version of the real Nobel Prizes. And these are uh, given out in a ceremony, a very nice ceremony at Harvard. And uh, they are to honor achievements that make people laugh and then make them think. And uh, it's an annual award, and uh, there's a, a whole uh, theatrical <laughs> ceremony uh, for awarding these. And they are awarded in different uh, categories. For example, this year, the Chemistry Prize went to a team of pediatric dentists uh, at a, a Japanese university for determining how much saliva a five-year-old produces. Uh, I'm sure that's critical knowledge for uh, uh, some dentists, and they, make, they may laugh, and then uh, they think about this. 
Uh, there were some other interesting awards. The physics prize was awarded to a team that studied how and why wombats make cubed poo. Wombat is a cute little uh, animal. And uh, uh, the group suggested that uh, the irregular elasticity of a wombat's intestine leads to compact cubed feces. Well, next time you're out there somewhere in the wild and you're... Uh, uh, looking down at uh, animal fecal matter, and you see that one of them is in the shape of a cube, you will know that it was produced by a wombat. Ah, there were others. There was the Medicine Prize, quote, for collecting evidence that pizza might protect against illness and death, but only if that pizza is made and eaten in Italy. And that was reported in the European Journal of Cancer. And that's a peer-reviewed uh, journal. And uh, there were uh, a number of other very interesting prizes. Two human fertility researchers at the University of Toulouse earned the anatomy prize for thermal asymmetry of the human scrotum. And they studied postal workers and bus drivers and found that their scrota were not symmetrical. And I bet you were just burning to know about that. You're listening to The Dr. Joe Show. Take a break, and we'll be back. Life's everyday mystery solved. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Well, let me try to solve the mystery of Takotsubu cardiomyopathy. That was first identified in Japan in 1990, and it's a temporary heart condition. It's brought on by stress. It has the same symptoms as a heart attack, but there is no underlying cardiovascular disease. It is named Takotsubo because during the uh, acute phase of the syndrome, the uh, left ventricle, that's the part of the heart that actually uh, pushes blood out through the body, it bulges and takes on a balloon shape. And that shape is similar in appearance to the Japanese fisherman's Takotsubo, which is an octopus trap. Very interesting nomenclature here. And uh, this kind of cardiomyopathy starts abruptly, unpredictably, and there's chest pain, shortness of breath, fainting. And very often it is triggered by emotional or a physically stressful event, usually seen in women between the ages of 61 and 76, very often after they have lost uh, their life partner. And, uh, of course, they end up in emergency rooms thinking that they have a heart attack and that all those symptoms are similar. Uh, they recover uh, uneventfully but often stay uh, uh, several days in uh, hospital. And the reason that I, I bring this up is because it turns out that the same condition can be triggered by wasabi, uh, which is, of course, that uh, extremely potent type of uh, horseradish that is used with, that is consumed with sushi. And the British Medical Journal reports a case of a 60-year-old lady who ate a mouthful of wasabi and uh, came down with this cardiac problem. She was attending a wedding and mistook a bowl of this uh, horseradish paste for avocado. And those of you who have tasted wasabi will know that taking a spoonful of this as a spoonful of an avocado dip is not a good idea. So she immediately experienced pain in her limbs and went to the hospital, and doctors diagnosed her with Takotsubo cardiomyopathy, also known as broken heart syndrome. And uh, she recovered uh, uneventfully. So do not make this mistake of uh, 
going out and eating wasabi instead of uh, avocado paste. Avocado paste, of course, uh, is, is certainly a healthy thing to be eating. Avocados are great, even though they're high in fat. They contain the kind of fat that is uh, not a problem because it is very low in saturated uh, fats. Now, if you think that uh, that is an unusual uh, situation, what about the man who got drunk on beer? Well, that isn't so strange, is it, getting drunk on beer? But what if that drink is made in your own gut? And uh, this is a fascinating story. Uh, when this normally healthy 46-year-old man began to experience mental fogginess, dizziness, and uh, memory lapses, and uh, he had to give up his job. He went to multiple doctors and they could not find anything wrong. A psychiatrist even prescribed him with antidepressants, but that didn't help. But what did happen was that he was arrested for erratic driving and his blood alcohol reading was way above the normal level and he swore up and down that he had not consumed any alcohol at all. Police obviously did not believe him. So the man who was baffled by this because he knew himself that he had not consumed any alcohol, he went to see a gastroenterologist and who discovered that he had high levels of a fungus uh, in his stool. And that fungus is also known as brewer's yeast. Uh, why? Because it is used to convert carbohydrates into alcohol. Well, how did this man uh, get this uh, problem? How did his blood alcohol levels shoot up so high? Well, in 2017, he had attended a specialist clinic in, at Richmond University Medical Center in New York where he was diagnosed with autobrewery syndrome. And uh, this happens after a prolonged course of antibiotics, which he happened to take. And uh, he had taken this way back in the early uh, uh, 2011. Uh, he had taken it for a thumb injury. And uh, it turned out that what had happened was that the antibiotics disrupted the man's balance of gut microbe, microbes, and it caused an abnormal growth of this particular yeast, which normally exists at very low levels anyway in the human gut. And uh, in this particular case, the antibiotic treatment uh, destroyed some of the bacteria that were controlling the growth of the other microbes. And uh, he came down with this uh, overcolonization of this particular yeast, and it started producing uh, alcohol in his gut. What a strange story that is, but uh, it is well documented. And this has also been reported in people uh, with gut disorders like Crohn's disease, uh, most commonly due to this overabundance of, uh, of some sort of other uh, fungus. Anyway, uh, the gentleman was treated with antifungal medication, and he was given probiotics to try to restore the balance of, of uh, microbes in his gut. And uh, apparently now he has been symptom-free for a couple of years. So there you go. What a strange story that is about the man who got drunk on beer that was brewed in his own gut. Uh, as I often say, the human body is such a, an amazing uh, piece of machinery in, in many ways. You never know what it can do uh, in, in, in terms of... Uh, triggering uh, uh, this uh, unusual heart condition that I mentioned and also on getting someone drunk on beer that they uh, brew themselves. Uh, and it's also, you know, amazing that the human body has such recuperative powers. You know, uh, we don't uh, 
think about this often enough, you know, how basically miraculous it is that you cut your hand and uh, eventually it heals. Uh, you break your bones and your bones heal. Uh, you catch a cold and uh, eventually in seven days it goes away. Or if you take whatever medication is available for a week, it go, uh, for the cold, it goes away in a week, uh, which of course means that there's not a whole lot to be said about uh, uh, medications for, uh, for the common cold. But uh, the human body has uh, amazing recuperative powers. But of course, eventually, uh, we run out of all of the magic, and uh, we know that the end result is not very attractive uh, because... Uh, Basically, there's no coming back, right? I mean, eventually the body wears out, and as far as we know, no one has returned from the other side. The ancient Egyptians, of course, uh, thought that life goes on uh, in the other world in a fashion very similar to what happens here, which is the reason that they had bows and arrows uh, and all kinds of food entombed with their pharaohs who were uh, mummified. Uh, they even had... Uh, uh, medications uh, supposedly that they would need in the other world although one wonders why those medications would not have been used in this world in order to prevent them from going to the other anyway you're listening to the dr joe show we're going to take a break and be right back science you can use the dr joe show on cjad 800 okay we have tracked down why peru is the richest country in the world that slogan is an advertising one concocted by the uh, Peruvian Tourist Bureau. And uh, what they are suggesting is that Peru indeed is extremely rich in uh, culture, in adventure, in ancient history, and in nature. So it's an interesting uh, bit of advertisement, but they are not talking about any sort of financial wealth. And indeed, uh, I mean, Peru does have all kinds of, of uh, fascinating natural uh, attractions. And uh, that basically is what they're talking about. They also make a point that it is a great culinary destination. I'm not exactly sure what Peruvian food is, but, but uh, uh, there must be something that is unique uh, 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 to uh, Peru. And of course, there's Machu Picchu, which is one of the wonders of the world. So indeed, it seems that Peru is rich, and when they're talking about the richest country in the world, they're not talking financially. <clears throat> All right. It's a captivating story. Dr. Feroidun Batmangeliji, that's a name, <laughs> an Iranian physician, educated in England. He returns to his home country to set up hospitals and medical centers. Then he is caught in the purge that followed the dethroning of the Shah and ends up in the infamous Evan prison with thousands of other political prisoners. Here, fate deals him a royal flush, and he discovers the cure for virtually all diseases. In fact, he is so excited by his findings that he asks to stay in prison for four months beyond his release date so that he can complete his research using his fellow prisoners. After his release, he emigrates to America, bringing with him his spectacular findings, but discovers that the medical establishment is not ready to fawn over his miraculous breakthrough. 
Batman Kellich quickly concludes that the powerful pharmaceutical industry rules the medical waves and it has to protect its profits in face of a stunning discovery that allows people to throw off the yoke of drugs and cure themselves with a simple cheap regimen. As I said, it's a captivating story. Too bad it's utter nonsense. What was the good doctor's spectacular prison discovery? That most diseases are caused by dehydration and can be cured just by drinking water and taking some salt. I kid you not. Whether Batman Kellidge was kidding, I do not know. Was he a clever money-hungry charlatan or just a deluded simpleton? Both, of course, are possible. Shortly after being imprisoned, our hero was asked to treat a prisoner who appeared to be in gastric distress, which uh, Batman Kellidge diagnosed as a peptic ulcer. Having no medication available, he dosed him with two glasses of water and saw the pain disappear in a few minutes. He then claims to have treated 3,000 other prisoners with peptic ulcer in the same fashion with similar success. His appetite, whetted by this discovery, began treating any disease with water and concluded that this mundane treatment virtually always worked. After his release from prison, he claims to have carried out further research in the U.S. for 18 years, curing patients of asthma, arthritis, migraines, hypertension, angina, diabetes, and even multiple sclerosis. Low back pain, he said, responds almost immediately. As Batman Kellidge explains, without any evidence, back pain is a sign of water shortage in the spinal column and discs. Curiously, the only record of these cures exists in his book, Your Body's Many Cries for Water, which also includes gems such as, quote, cholesterol is a clay-like material that is poured in the gaps of some cell membranes to safeguard them against losing their vital water content. What bunk? A check of the medical literature reveals no studies by this medical icon, no scientific paper save for one editorial in the Journal of Clinical Gastroenterology in 1983. That's not much to show to back up a claim of curing almost all diseases. His message is, you are not sick, you are thirsty. Don't treat thirst with medication. Of course, the medical establishment wants this simple solution hushed up because it cannot admit to the American public that they have made a bad mistake and that drugs are not the best treatment or cure for any disease. This is not just benign nonsense, since Batman Kellidge advises people to take the water cure instead of medication or surgery. But he's a modest man. I did not invent water, he says. I only discovered its importance to health and well-being. Well, of course, water is important, but Batman Kellidge's notions are not supported by evidence. Given that he says he has helped hundreds of thousands of people, surely there must be some supportive medical record. Where are they? We can't ask him, because in 2004, his water cure sprung a leak, and this modern-day Galileo died of pneumonia. Apparently, bacteria are not scared of water. Water can cure heartburn, arthritis, low back pain. Sign of water shortage in spinal column and discs. Pain medications are dangerous. Angina is a sign of water shortage in the 
in the heart or lungs, migraines, colitis, asthma, high blood pressure, type 2 diabetes, and high cholesterol. All of these can be treated with, with water. Well, it made for a very seductive story, uh, but uh, I think today we look at this as sort of an adventure in comedy. Okay, getting back a little bit to, to comedy, uh, the Ig Nobel uh, Prizes. Um, there were some other interesting ones uh, on top of the ones that uh, I mentioned. For their study, the pleasurability of scratching an itch, a psychophysical and topographical assessment, five dermatologists, a psychologist, and a biostatistician were awarded the Peace Prize, the Ig Nobel Peace Prize. Uh, okay, and then finally, Julius Maximilian University of Würzburg psychologist Fritz Strack won the psychology prize, quote, for discovering that holding a pen in one's mouth makes one smile, which makes one happier, and then for discovering that it does not. Uh, you can actually see the uh, uh, ceremonies for the uh, Ig Nobel Prize if you go online and just uh, uh, Google Ig Nobel Ceremony. You'll be able to see a video recording of this, and I think you will be uh, entertained. But uh, interestingly enough, uh, these are all uh, uh, publications in the peer-reviewed scientific literature, and there always is, you know, some uh, interesting science to them. Uh, so although they are unusual, it does not mean that they are completely nonsensical. All right, well, that is it. We have once again run uh, out of time. Uh, I didn't get around to talking about the artificial flavors. We just ran out of time, but uh, don't worry. There will be time next week, and we will be back with you. Same time, same station. Until then, I'm Joe Schwartz, hoping that all the chemistry in your life comes out just right.